0: I'm an unreliable narrator, and I think you need to know that about me. Years ago, I actually started a blog called The Unreliable Narrator, and I'm pretty sure if you Google my name, that blog might still come up, even though I never post anything on it, and honestly, I don't even think I have the password for it anymore. But I absolutely love the literary technique of using The Unreliable Narrator as the first-person voice in a fiction story, because as the author... I can hide so much in the characters' blind spots that my readers get to discover at the same time as my character, which to me is just fantastic. But when I started writing my first blog, I think I lacked the willingness or maybe it was just the ability to even acknowledge my biggest blind spots, and so my content came off preachy and kind of short-sighted. I at least knew something was off about what I was writing, so that's why I never kept up with that blog. But Back then, I don't think I really knew how to write authentically about myself or the world around me. I knew how to write fiction, but when it came to how I wanted to record my non-fiction thoughts, I can see now that my personal fiction played with the facts of who I really wanted to be in my life as a writer, and it was too complicated for me to separate the two sides of my inner narrative. And while I had a genuine desire to share the real me with other people, I had absolutely no clue about how to invite people into a space where they could judge the more honest version of me. I guess the difference between then and now is that I'm completely willing to judge myself which, as it turns out, is pretty empowering, and I think that fact alone has made me so much more aware of who I am, what I think, and what I can see in the world around me. And. That unreliable narrator who lives inside of me may not be totally trustworthy, but I know she better understands how powerful honest words can be, and she also knows how important it is to find the right words that won't completely color a story, but also words that won't leave a story without any meaning whatsoever. And the unreliable narrator in me also knows how transformative truth is when it's infused into a narrative, even if the people who read that narrative don't like the colors they decide to see. I guess I want to believe that truth is a perfect prism that reflects light and color in different ways for different people, yet I also believe that the truth is never betrayed by the kaleidoscope of colors. Only misunderstood when we can't find a connection in the patterns that the light of real truth is scattering over all of us in this life. Hey everyone, it's Sonia Bentley Zant, and welcome to another episode of Nerd Alert. I kind of borrowed some content I posted on my blog for that introduction, but I felt like I needed to change it up a bit. That's the privilege of a writer who has access to his or her own words, I suppose. But for me, this episode is all about how stories get told by the media, as well as how we as individuals internalize certain narratives and how all of those types of stories can directly influence our lives, as well as the lives of our fellow citizens. I'm pretty sure that writing was always something I knew I'd pursue in my life mostly because most of my high school teachers praised me for my writing skills, and sometimes even now when I get a little doubtful, a teacher's words of affirmation can come back to me and give me the perfect little nudge I need to keep trying. And even though I adored my high school English classes, and the ones I took in college too, and I also loved writing arguments and position papers in my history and debate classes— The only thing I really wanted to figure out once I got to college was how to get a degree that utilized my writing and could make me some money. And even though I considered becoming a lawyer like I imagine a lot of young people do when they let income potential guide them into a career of choice, I guess I was lucky enough to realize that being a lawyer might not bring out the best in me. So eventually, even though the pay was known to be crap, I did decide to major in journalism. But not long after I enrolled in Journalism 101, I started to feel like my major of choice was going to be a big mistake. That first semester in my declared major was kind of brutal on my ego because I kept getting average grades when I felt like I was turning in some of the best writing of my life. So, midway through that first semester, I broke down and went to my academic advisor for some guidance. I was fully expecting this woman to sort me out and give me the secret to being the next budding journalist. But instead, she pretty much deflated me with two very short and very pointed statements that I'll never forget. She said, Sonia, as a journalist, no one wants to know what you think. They just want to know what happened. Ouch! <laughs> but her words really did help me because I instantly realized how right she was. If I was going to report on the news, it couldn't be about me or how I saw the world. It had to be just the facts of what happened and nothing more. That's when I started to gain a better understanding of how word choices could completely color my reporting and how the details I noticed about a given story were completely altered by how I shared those details and the way I organized the structure of my story. In that first year of journalism school, I really did hone my reporting craft, and I began to gain a healthy respect for the power of adjectives and (laughs) adverbs— But I also learned how to pick apart nuances in a story with a very thin needle. And that whole process was mentally exhausting for me because when it comes to the nuances of a major news story, for me at least, there's never been a thin enough needle to catch every strand. Journalism school taught me that it's not only exhausting but also incredibly difficult to keep my own thoughts in check. And during that first year, actually really started to dislike writing. So when it came time to declare my journalism specialty, I know I was one of the first ones to sign up to take another meeting with my advisor. I needed her blunt words to help me figure out if I should keep going or if I should quit and find something else to do. And I remember feeling super vulnerable when I met with this busy lady, but at least this time, I was more prepared for her sharp words that were completely void of any color or warmth. And she did not disappoint when she said, Sonia, you're a decent writer, but you'll never be a great reporter. You have too much imagination, and your reporting style is still way too generous. I think you need to major in public relations, because it's all about spin, and I think you have an instinct for spin. At the time, I think I was just so hungry for any kind of praise or affirmation from this woman that I remember being relieved to find out my writing was decent. (laughs) And I know I didn't fully understand what she was suggesting about a specialty in PR, but I think I was just thankful that she saw a fit for me and my generous writing skills somewhere in the world of journalism. But once I started into my selected discipline, I actually felt repulsed by that term, spin. And even though I did do well in those public relations classes, the contrast between the real discipline of reporting and the shadows and the shade and the color I could use when I was writing a press release made me feel less than somehow. I of course completed my education but right out of college I didn't jump into a career in journalism or PR. I actually became a flight attendant which is a story for a totally different podcast but eventually I did get a job in journalism and almost immediately I knew this job was never going to work for me. I think my college advisor was correct in her statement that I simply have too much imagination. And as I've gotten older, I think I'm too intrigued by how impossible it is to ever really contain a story into one standalone narrative when the world around us is so very, very complex. What I've learned in journalism school is that news reporting should be reliable and solid, and it should include verifiable facts exclude all inflammatory word choices. Those were the keys to getting a news story out to the masses. People are counting on you when you're a journalist to keep your own personal feelings and opinions to yourself, and the cold hard facts are all they're really expecting from you, period. And in my very limited experience, I fully understand that's a really, really difficult thing to give them. But I already told you, I'm an unreliable narrator, and so every story I see has potential blind spots, hidden truths and wrinkles in the fabric that are just way too interesting and often too important to ignore. And maybe it's simply too much to expect that anyone in this world is truly capable of being completely reliable when it comes to publishing just the facts. Because maybe now, more than ever? The unreliable narrators inside of all of us have so many colorful ideas to express and so many more places to express them. Oi! <laughs> that was a long opening, right? <sighs> Just for the record, one of my biggest redline criticisms in journalism school and as a fiction writer is that sometimes I can go a little long. And I am sorry about that. But at the moment, I don't have a podcasting editor or a production team to help me make the critical cuts and choices in my scripting. And I guess it's just really important for me to qualify myself as someone who might have a worthy perspective on the topic of journalism. Anyway, sometimes I feel like what passes for journalism today is very different from what I was taught in school. But maybe that's an unreliable narrative I've decided to believe with no real fact checking on my part which is exactly what I find myself criticizing about the modern media machine. So I decided to take some time to do a bit of research into things, and I came out on the other side of my search with some better insights. Not necessarily the only insights, mind you, but this newfound understanding adds a few more pieces to a puzzle I'm still working out in my mind about how news stories play out in this modern world of ours. So in this episode of Nerd Alert, I put my journalism hat back on for a minute and I've scoured the internet as well as every possible journalism podcast I could find to see if there is some kind of reliable narrator out there that I can count on. Now I realize that not everyone is going to find this topic of interest if I dive too deeply into it so what I did was put on my nose plug and I swam around in the murky waters on my own but when I resurfaced I came up with three main nerd alerts to share with you in this episode. Now, they're all three very different, but each nerd alert keeps bringing me back to the same point that unreliable narrators can show up in all sorts of ways in this life, and if you never allow yourself to question that fact, even when it comes to your own internal voices, you might end up feeling a little duped. At least that's what I've been thinking anyway. Nerd alert, you've been warned. So this first nerd alert should probably come with an extra warning because it might be way too nerdy for the average listener. But if you're at all interested in journalism and how stories make their way into your news feed these days, then this podcast suggestion may be of interest to you. One of my favorite words to use in my writing is the word tricky. It's a great adjective that comes in super handy for me whenever I'm trying to straddle a topic I know has the power to polarize, even when all I'm trying to do is describe the topic. And the definition of this word completely sums it up. Tricky describes a task or a situation that requires care and skill because it's difficult or awkward. Whew. There's a lot of that going on in our midst. And when it comes to the news media and Stories that seem to grab people the most, tricky might be the safest word I can come up with to define most of them these days. So, when I was exploring the podcasts that are out there to help me unpack the realities in this modern era of journalism, a podcast actually called Tricky immediately caught my eye. It's a straight up journalism podcast, and what pulled me in for a listen was not only the name, but The fact that the series is hosted by two journalism educators, Heather Chaplin and Emily Bell, who are both involved with the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Now, both of these women are actively writing and teaching, and so for me, I feel like they might be able to add something to what I think I know and to what I remember trying to learn all those years ago in journalism school. And so far, this podcast has been really useful and pretty enlightening. Let me take it back a notch and give you a brief synopsis. As usual, I'm borrowing from the podcast's show notes and then, of course, reworking them a bit so this content will make more sense in my podcast. And from there, I'll let you decide if you're up for a listen. Disentangling journalism's naughtiest problems. That's what the Tricky Podcast is all about. In each episode, Heather Chaplin and Emily Bell call leading thinkers, doers, writers, and designers to tease out where journalism really goes from here, and how modern journalists are confronting major realities at play in this digitally driven world. When I first came across this podcast, I sort of cherry-picked the episodes I listened to of Tricky because I already had a list of topics and questions on my mind. And I guess I was sincerely hoping that this podcast could help me find some satisfying answers about the modern era of journalism. And you know what? It did. But in one of the episodes, episode 6, which is called Print is Dead! Long Live Print! I learned about this organization called the Neiman Journalism Lab. And in that episode, when I heard an interview with one of their directors named Joshua Benton... I ended up spending a whole afternoon nerding out on my computer, reading articles and stories posted on this fascinating website. Just for the record, quote, the Neiman Journalism Lab is an attempt to help journalism figure out its future in the internet age, end quote. And so far, all of the articles I've read on this site attempt to to unravel the current quandaries reporters face in a world where everyone is walking around with a gadget in his or her pocket that can provide access to information that may or may not be vetted or fact-checked using the traditional standards once thought to be the hallmark of credible journalism. Now, I gotta tell you, this kind of stuff completely intrigues me. And in a way, after digging into some of the topics mentioned on the tricky podcast in multiple episodes, And after reading a lot of fascinating articles on the Neiman Lab website, I'm starting to see that technology may be changing the way we access news, but human nature has always been the messiest conduit a story has to filter through to get to another human being. So, as a nerdy little bonus, I've put a link to an article from the Neiman Journalism Lab website in my show notes because this article was so darn good. It was co-authored by two journalists named Heidi Twarek and Jonathan Maxwell Hamilton, and it was the poll quote in the header of this article that totally got me. It said, quote, In our news today, we can see the Tattler, the Party Pamphlet, the Recondite Journal of Opinion, The Yellow Rag, The Journal of Commerce, The Sob Sister, The Literary Journal, and The Progressive Muckraker." But the thing I didn't see in that list was anything about hardcore, hard-hitting, fact-based journalism. But once I got into the meat of the article, it became clear to me that the transmission of stories from one person to another person has always been fraught with this exact same mix of content. And the expectation for a story to be hardcore or a blatant example of factually-based reporting falls apart not with the story, but rather with that faulty expectation. Now, I just want to directly quote some of my discoveries from that article, and then I promise I'll move on to my next point, but just, just check this out. For centuries, people have gossiped about news They sang songs and they spread rumors. In the early information society of pre-revolutionary Paris, they gathered under a tree, the tree of Krakow, to gossip about French elites and make up stories about them. Sound familiar? Social media platforms like Twitter are the new trees of Krakow. They are the perfect places to spread rumors, jokes, and gossip. People operate independently without editorial supervision like the English 17th century chronicler, John Aubrey, who combines secondhand information with his own witty observations and vignettes on notables. Individual observations can be packaged and repackaged into news, whether it's about cats on the morning television news or bombs in Syria. The scope, speed, and scale of this many-to-many diffusion is different the dynamic itself is not. Why does all of this feel like such a relief to me? Maybe it's the reminder that when news travels from person to person, it's always had the chance to be altered by how it's told and how the listener wants to hear it. And I guess I'm finding comfort in the realization that the same variables that have always altered the truth when one person is reporting something to another person has never changed. And maybe understanding how things haven't really gotten worse, but in fact have more or less stayed the same, has provided me with some useful perspective. But above all else, I, I do believe that seeing things this way has made me understand that I didn't really fail out as a journalist all those years ago. But... Instead, I think I might have just accepted my limitations in my humanity. And perhaps I made the unconscious decision to stop fighting against myself when I chose not to pursue a career in journalism, which in a way has led me to this acceptance that I simply can't void myself of color in any story I hear or that I tell. been able to say it this way all those years ago, but I can now. And what I really believe is that no one can totally void themselves of their own thoughts, beliefs, or opinions in this life, because those are all a part of what make us human. And what this does for me now is shift this expectation I have for myself as well as for others into this space where I can see that no one is truly capable of just reporting the facts as they stand with no bias, no color, and no nuances because as human beings we will always be subject to the flaws of our nature no matter what we do and suddenly the shadow is lifted off of the expectation or belief that there really is such a thing as a totally and completely reliable narrator in this life granted some people come closer to an elevated delivery of the facts than others and There are people out there who I believe do have a deep desire to look for truth at all costs and then tell others about it no matter how uncomfortable that truth may make people feel. But on the whole, no matter what technologies come into play that make access to news faster and more available than ever, as long as human beings are a part of the story in any which way, as far as I can tell, the trickiness of finding truth. Always needs to be handled with care. I pretty much always learn something new whenever I listen to an episode of Tricky. And even if there are times when I feel like I might have taken the conversation or the interview in a different direction than the two hosts did, or even if I can posit a different conclusion than the one they made... I truly respect the idea that journalists are all doing their best to be the arbiters of the truth, and I for one believe it's next to impossible to fully rid yourself of how you see the world, even when your actual job is to simply report the facts. But I made an observation in Episode 3 of Nerd Alert, which was called When Stories Converge, and that observation was that the passage of time creates this added benefit to how we process stories and facts. These days, I feel like some of the most sensationalized news stories have the chance to get even more distorted because there's this whole new rush to be the first media outlet to report something big. And so taking the time to thoroughly fact check or dig a little deeper into something isn't all that practical for the modern journalist reporting on a deadline. And when the reporting in question falls into the crime beat, well, the pressure to solve the case adds even more messy variables to the mix. And in my opinion, any kind of added pressure impacts the quality of the stories we end up consuming. So years later, when a journalist has the time to look back and ask new questions and chase down leads and interview key people again after the hysteria dies down, and after everyone involved has had time to ponder and second-guess themselves, it's not really a surprise that the story can often change. Let's face it. It's much easier to expose the holes that were left in a story with the benefit of hindsight. And a good investigative journalist who looks back on a tricky story can help to correct the narrative to be more reliable. And in a way, this looking back can help us spot the unreliable narrators that totally influenced the story the first time around and reveal how they got into the mix all those years ago in the first place. Nerd Alert! You've been warned. One of the earliest podcasts I can remember ever binging was the one called Serial. It was one of the first podcasts of its kind where an investigative journalist looked into a real crime story and then presented the case to the listeners over multiple episodes. Peabody award-winning journalist Sarah Koenig and her producer Julie Snyder became pretty well-known in the world of podcasting when they released season one of Serial, which I learned was reportedly downloaded more than 68 million times. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I'd be shocked if you haven't already heard this podcast. I mean, come on, 68 million downloads? Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning a podcast I bet you've already listened to is because what Sarah and Julie did when they launched a Serial in 2014 is start a unique trend in both podcasting and documentary filmmaking where investigative journalists go back and take a deeper, more invested look into true crime cases that seem to lack a totally reliable conclusion. And around the time that serial reached its height in popularity, Netflix jumped on the bandwagon too and released episodic true crime narratives like Making a Murderer, The Staircase, The Keepers, and so many more. And actually, my third nerd alert involves another way this collision of true crime and storytelling is creating a new kind of unreliable narrator in our midst. But for now, I want to keep my focus on podcasting and how these true crime narratives have impacted me as a listener. Now, I feel like I should probably warn you that I do like a dark and twisty podcast series. Mostly because my mind spends so little regular time thinking about crimes and horrible happenings in this world that when a good true crime podcast comes along that uncovers a very layered story, each episode has the ability to rattle me and wake me up a little bit, I guess. And if you were to look at my podcast library, you'd see a lot of true crime and unsolved murder podcasts But there's really only one that I felt like talking about in this episode of Nerd Alert, and that's the podcast series called Man in the Window. Man in the Window is a pretty chilling seven-episode podcast series from the LA Times about the Golden State Killer, who, if you don't already know, is a serial killer, rapist, and burglar who committed at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes and more than a hundred robberies in california between 1974 and 1986 and he's believed to be responsible for at least three crime sprees throughout the state of california and eventually dna evidence linked several of the unsolved crimes to the same man and on april 24th 2018 authorities charged 72 year old united states navy veteran and former police officer Joseph James D'Angelo, with eight counts of first-degree murder. For me, this podcast was riveting and totally fascinating from the investigative side of things, but some of the stories in this podcast also sincerely broke my heart. And I know I'm not alone when it comes to the poignancy of this particular true crime series, because it really does reveal how much the unreliable narrators in this world rob people of more than what we can account for in a crime report. I honestly couldn't recap The Man in the Window podcast better than the review I read about this series and the incredibly tenacious LA Times journalist behind it named Paige St. John. I don't even want to try, mostly because my feelings about this podcast feel kind of visceral, even though I listened to this series for the first time several months ago. I guess I just never really stopped thinking about it. So instead of reading you a hybrid synopsis of this series like I usually do, I want to directly quote from the the podcast review website that I follow, and I really do think you'll see why I wanted to talk about this podcast in the unreliable narrator episode of Nerd Alert. Our culture is obsessed with serial killers. Become one and you can rest assured that the media will scrutinize every detail of your life. The Golden State Killer certainly received this treatment. By early 2018, he was already the subject of a New York Times best-selling book and episodes of My Favorite Murder and Case File. Then, in April of that year, DNA evidence led to the arrest of a man believed to be the Golden State Killer, and an inevitable rush to cash in on the story's renewed attention began. With all the coverage the case has received, It is fair to be skeptical of the podcast series, Man in the Window, yet another podcast on a serial murderer and rapist sponsored by a home security system to boot. With such concerns about the podcast's motives, it helps to have a host who understands good reporting. Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Paige St. John easily meets that criterion. With St. John at the show's helm, the L.A. Times podcast opts for a thoroughly reported approach to the case. Much of each episode's runtime is spent on her interviews with the crime's survivors and investigators. And these interviews are the show's best answer as to why it should exist. Not only do they keep the podcast grounded in first-person narratives, but they give those attacked by the Golden State Killer the opportunity to tell their stories. For me, this podcast turned into this must-listen-to series because I was moved by how deeply Paige St. John cared about the survivors she interviewed and by how methodically she peeled back the errors that were made in the original investigation when detectives started to fall into a space where a few of their own unreliable narratives started to shape and ultimately limit their pursuit of the perp. With the benefit of hindsight, most of the blind spots in the investigation were finally exposed and they connected to this single serial killer. And for me, that unfolding completely illustrates how powerfully we cling to stories that don't move us toward the truth. But if you're not into true crime, I don't want to make you listen to something you're not interested in. But I do want to say that this podcast series had one episode that I think is incredibly valuable to check out if you're up for it. It's episode 7, and it's called The Language of Rape. The bulk of the crimes linked to the Golden State Killer happened in the 1970s and early 80s, and the rapes that were reinvestigated in this podcast series reveal a deep disconnect in how rape victims were treated in the aftermath of crimes like these. Their stories were often diminished, and, and one very sad story swept under the rug so no one would know. But... The voices of the rape survivors who spoke to Paige St. John really got to me. Over the years, living with a shame they didn't deserve and a pain they simply couldn't express or heal, it took a real toll on these women. But in Episode 7, Paige sits down with another journalist named Laura Bell, and the two do this incredibly good thing by talking about why victims, police, and the media all struggle to talk about rape. And for me... What struck me the most is that unless new conversations like these are added to the dialogue, an unreliable narrator can carry forth a story that has so many lies in it and so much shame and very little hope because it will never be exposed for anything other than what it's already been. A story that's never revisited or talked about in multiple ways using all kinds of perspectives gets trapped and then packaged and Sometimes we end up putting a story like that up on a shelf so we don't have to think about it anymore. No, this is not an easy podcast to listen to, yet I would definitely qualify it as binge-worthy because it moved me. And I felt like it was important for me to listen to a podcast like this to add some perspective to my own little world. Window because it's the latest podcast on the scene, or because it's the kind of topic that gets people excited or thinking about what's next. I'm telling you about this podcast because I'm so committed in my own walk to outing the unreliable narrators in my own life, including the ones that live in my own head. Because stories that make us better versions of ourselves don't stay stuck. They move forward once we have the grace and the perspective to release a story that's been stuck in the past. And for me, what Page St. John did for these rape survivors was give them the ability to move forward. And I, for one, wanted to join them. Well, sorry if things got a little heavy there, but like I said, sometimes a dark story can help me look at things differently. And looking at life differently is pretty much the reason why I like to listen to podcasts in the first place. Anyway, I do have one final nerd alert for you in this episode, and I already told you that it involves the collision of true crime stories and how narratives like that get told in our world. And fortunately for you, this one is kind of funny. In a tricky way, of course. Nerd alert. You've been warned. One of the many things I love about podcasts is there are so many different ones to choose from. And so whenever I'm trying to add to my life, I'll start scouring the world of podcasting to find some new voices to join my unreliable voice so I can learn a few more things about myself. So I do actually subscribe to other writing related podcasts besides Tricky. And one of my all time favorites is a writer's podcast called The Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. Quoting directly from their show notes as the, quote, definitive insider's guide to our current golden age of television, Ben Blacker's The Writer's Panel is an ever-expanding anthology of live convention panels and intimate in-studio interviews with the writers, producers, and showrunners responsible for the shows you simply can't stop watching. Okay, for just a little bit of context about why I like this podcast so much, one of the times where my own unreliable narrator took me off onto one of the most destructive pathways of my life was when I was adapting my novel, Hurricane Season, into an original series script. That experience almost wrecked me on so many levels, and for a really long time, I thought the whole messy ending of that writing process was just my fault. And I really believed that my inexperience and my total lack of writing game were to blame for the stallouts I ended up experiencing after that whole thing came to an end. And to be honest, those thoughts totally crushed me at one point in time. So one day, about two years ago, I got super curious about how other people write. And I wanted to know if they had experiences like mine whenever they were writing and trying to move a story from the pages of a book onto a screen so that that story might discover a new kind of life. So I tried a few writing podcasts before I discovered the writer's panel, and most of them helped a little, but not the way that this one did. Every time I listen to one of the panel interviews featured on this series, I feel relieved, and I feel like I'm not alone. And I guess I also feel like it would be so much fun to get to collaborate with other creatives someday, too, because the people Ben Blacker has interviews with on this show are always interesting but they're also shockingly humble and transparent and so creative. Now, I know this podcast series won't be of interest to all of my listeners in the same way that it is for me, but the episode of this series that I'm going to highlight for you might actually make you laugh, and if you do listen to it, it might also reveal this other unreliable narrator we happily welcome into our lives these days, and that's this new thing in our world called the mockumentary. In episode 385 of the Writer's Panel, it's all about the hit Netflix show called American Vandal. Here's the synopsis of that specific episode just to get you up to speed. In the midst of pop culture's ongoing obsession with all things true crime, Netflix American Vandal arrived just in time to set social media ablaze with one tantalizing question the dicks. Like amateur documentarians Peter and Sam, viewers found themselves enamored not only by the show's central mystery, which was uncovering the perpetrator of a costly phallic prank, but the precision with which the series had satirized the genre itself. In this case study, join the creative team behind Vandal for a detailed look at the series from pitch to development a bona fide hit as they discuss their own influences and their own fascination with the true crime genre. This was such a fascinating episode to consider in the light of this podcast because I was already looking into unreliable narrators and how they influence the masses and then along comes a discussion about a show that's 100% unreliable in every way yet it's purposely designed to deceive you for the sake of satire and entertainment. And when I was listening to this panel discussion, it became clear to me how committed the writers were to trying to make every part of this show feel real and authentic, down to the last detail. But it was all just fiction. And I caught myself laughing a lot when these writers were being interviewed, and one of the reasons I cherry-picked this episode to listen to on a hike one day was because I actually did watch season one of American Vandal on Netflix when it first came out. And I remember when I first watched it, wondering if this story was fact or fiction because the situation felt like it really could happen these days. Now, in case you haven't heard about the show American Vandal, here's the Mock You series premise. The first season of American Vandal follows the aftermath of a costly high school prank that left 27 faculty cars vandalized with phallic images. Senior class clown Dylan Maxwell is accused of the crime by the school. He's expelled but an investigation into the incident is launched by sophomore Peter Maldonado with the help of his friend Sam Uckland and together the two try to uncover whether Dylan was the one truly behind the crime. There are two full seasons of American Vandal on Netflix, but one was plenty for me because the show was kind of absurd. But I think as a storyteller and creative person, even before I heard what the writers had to say about this Peabody award-winning series, I felt like as a standalone show, it provided such an interesting commentary on how stories morph in our culture. And the irony that a show that was a spoof on the way things happen in our world made it that much more nuanced for me too. But American Vandal did put a huge spotlight for me on the blind spots we have in our culture where news and gossip live on the same slippery slope. And how technology, social media, and human nature all seem to come together to create content that we can't easily recognize as fact or fiction anymore. The collision of all of those variables in an untrue story can be found in many true stories we consume these days as well, and what started out as a satire about true crime stories became a revelatory commentary on our willingness in this culture to not only live with unreliable narrators in our midst, but also a desire to celebrate them in all of their twisted glory. Now, You can apply so much from this writer's panel episode to how curated and cultivated most of the content we consume in this country has become. And while I'm not qualifying that as a good thing or a bad thing, I am saying that this fact has illuminated so much for me when it comes to my expectations of how all kinds of stories are told these days. To me, it seems like we feed on the sensational, and as a nation, our appetite for stories is a good thing when you're a writer like me. But when you're looking to stories of all kinds to help you shape or find or cull some kind of truth in this world, the reality that there's so little you can totally count on in the way of facts only complicates that search. But if I could bring this episode full circle and take us back to the whole idea of the stories you can rely on to help you find truth do have some final thoughts. What podcasts like Tricky do for me is remind me how difficult it is to be truly unbiased in this world. Human beings are flawed, and even with the best of intentions, it's dangerous to ever expect perfect truth to be exchanged from one human being to another, especially when we're talking about things that matter and when we can't seem to agree on the reasons why they matter so much. And what real true crime investigative podcasts like Man in the Window do for me is reveal how costly it can be to dig into a stubborn narrative. Because when you do that, the truth might get stuck in the past and never see the light of day. And it also taught me how important it is to consider painful stories with empathy and new eyes. We can only do better going forward in this life if we're willing to open up the past and gently lift those painful stories out into a new kind of light. And then what podcasts like the Writer's Panel offer me is the chance to see how fiction stories cross over into our lives masquerading as non-fiction stories, and for me at least, there's a lot of creative opportunity there. Things clearly didn't work out for me to be a journalist. It was just a terrible fit for me and my decent writing skills and my imagination and overgenerous mind that's involved in public relations felt like a poor fit too because that kind of writing felt like it had the ability to take me too far away from the truth I really wanted to write about in this world. So, Fiction writing came along and it totally satisfied this part of me that wanted to create and contribute using my passion for writing. And it also allowed me to use the first person narrative in a safe way where the unreliable narrator really could be the lead voice. But over the years, I've experienced a real desire and an unstoppable need, really, to reveal the real me. And to strip myself down to the closest point of honesty in my writing that I can manage. And I've wanted to judge myself while allowing others to join me in that process. And I've even wanted the real me to stand out in the open so I'd know what's next for me as an author and contributor. So for me this episode of Nerd Alert was all about inspecting the collision of all three types of writing in my life. And it was an exploration of how humans interact with stories of all kinds and the ways that we create unreliable voices that require a bit more investigation sometimes. And so I guess in this final episode of my first season of Nerd Alert, I can honestly say that I'm so thankful to be a writer, a storyteller and a person who's seeking all of the ways that I can add to the narratives in this crazy world of ours. I know I'll always use my love of writing as the way I try to connect to others, and I'll also be looking for authentic ways to be the real me in a world where the word real (laughs) is the root part of the word reality. And when reality TV and mockumentary series are two creative forces that drive our greatest understanding of our culture, I hope I'll get to be one of the people who's diving into all of it with my decent writing skills, my storyteller's passion, and my faithful pursuit of truth as my primary guide. Anyway, I just want to thank you for listening to all five episodes of my first season of Nerd Alert, and my plan is to start a second season soon. This was an incredible experience for me, and I feel like doing this podcast has taught me a lot about myself, so there's definitely more to come that you can be sure so until next time nerd alert you've been warned